Welcome to our lecture on the Northeast. Uh, this is for Wednesday, September um, 18th. We've been looking at trade, violence, and how power changed hands in the first few centuries of contact. We're going to continue this theme into the Native American communities of the Northeast. Like we talked about with the Southeast and Southwest, we'll revisit some Native American people that might be more familiar to you and learn their stories better. This lecture will also focus on the English instead of the Spanish and the French. In the contest for power and control between Indians and Europeans, there are three interrelated themes. Christianity, demand for land, and politics. To oversimplify some, here's how it works. The first theme we're going to discuss is politics. Because of the impact of disease and the declining profitability of trade, Indian diplomacy became less effective against Europeans. The English political structure came to dominate, and becoming a part of this structure or an enemy to it hinged largely on whether or not you were a Christian. Meanwhile, Indians continued practicing their own forms of diplomacy and politics, and their traditional ideas about politics continued to affect how individuals acted. The second theme is Christianity. In New England in particular, Europeans tended to homogenize Christians and savages and polarize them. This had political and military ramifications because Indian converts became a political threat to non-converts. The English political system dictated that preferred allies would be Christians. The third theme that comes out in these stories is the demand for land. Decreasing profitability of trade in furs and skins that we talked about in the last two lectures coincided with increasing demands for Indian land on which the English could settle and farm. Some Indian leaders began ceding land to the English in exchange for England's and the colony's recognition of their authority, generating disputes within Indian groups and less effective resistance to British incursions. Even Christian Indians, whose land claims were at first more secure, suffered dramatic land loss as the English and colonial economic and military priorities outweighed their commitments to their alliances with Indians. So use this story to think about how the interaction between philosophies of trade and exchange and philosophies of ethnocentricity turned into a violent conflict. I want to read a little bit, a couple of pages from a book called 1491 by the author Charles C. Mann to introduce you to this story. On March 22, 1621, an official Native American delegation walked through what is now southern New England to negotiate with a group of foreigners who had taken over a recently deserted Indian settlement. At the head of the party was an uneasy triumvirate, Massasoit, the Sachem, or political military leader, of the Wampanoag Confederation, a loose coalition of several dozen villages that controlled most of southeastern Massachusetts, Samoset, who was sachem of an allied group to the north, and Tisquantum, a distrusted captive whom Massasoit had re reluctantly brought along 
as an interpreter. Let me do some spelling for you. Massasoit is spelled M-A-S-S-A-S-O-I-T. Sachem is spelled S-A-C-H-E-M. Wampanoag is spelled W-A-M-P-A-N-O-A-G. Samoset is S-A-M-O-S-E-T. And Tisquantum is spelled T-I-S-Q-U-A-N-T-U-M. To continue with our story, Massasoit was an adroit politician, but the dilemma he faced would have tested Machiavelli. About five years before, most of his subjects had fallen before a terrible calamity. Whole villages had been depopulated. Indeed, the foreigners ahead now occupied one of the empty sites. It was all he could do to hold together the remnants of his people. Adding to his problems, the disaster had not touched the Wampanoag's longtime enemies, the Narragansett Alliance to the west. Narragansett is spelled N-A-R-R-A-G-A-N-S-E-T-T. Soon, Massasoit feared they would take advantage of the Wampanoag's weakness and overrun them. Desperate threats required desperate countermeasures. In a gamble, Massasoit intended to abandon, even reverse, a long-standing policy. Europeans had been visiting New England for at least a century. Shorter than the natives, oddly dressed and often unbearably dirty, the pallid foreigners had peculiar blue eyes that peeped out of the masks of bristly animal-like hair that encased their faces. They were irritatingly garrulous, prone to fits of chicanery, and often surprisingly incompetent at what seemed to Indians like basic tasks. But they also made useful and beautiful goods, copper kettles, glittering colored glass, and steel knives and hatchets, unlike anything else in New England. Moreover, they would exchange these valuable items for cheap furs of the sort used by Indians as blankets. It was like happening upon a dingy kiosk that would swap fancy electronic goods for customers' used socks. Almost anyone would be willing to overlook the shopkeeper's peculiarities. Over time, the Wampanoag, like other native societies in coastal New England, had learned how to manage the European presence. They They encouraged the exchange of goods, but would only allow their visitors to stay ashore for brief, carefully controlled excursions. Those who overstayed their welcome were forcefully reminded of the limited duration of Indian hospitality. At the same time, the Wampanoag fended off Indians from the interior, preventing them from trading directly with the foreigners. In this way, the shoreline groups put themselves in the position of classic middlemen, overseeing both European access to Indian products and Indian access to European products. Now Massasoit was visiting a group of British with the intent of changing the rules. He would permit the newcomers to stay for an unlimited time, provided they formally allied with the Wampanoag against the Narragansett. Tisquantum, the interpreter, had shown up alone at Massasoit's home a year and a half before. He spoke fluent English because he had lived for several years in Britain, but Massasoit didn't trust him. He seems to have been, in Massasoit's eyes, a man without anchor, out for himself. In a conflict, Tisquantum might even side with the foreigners. Massasoit had kept Tisquantum in a kind of captivity since his arrival, monitoring his actions closely, and he refused to use him to negotiate with the colonists until he had another independent means of communication with them. 
That March, Samoset, the third member of the triumvirate, appeared, having hitched a ride from his home in Maine on an English ship that was plying the coast. Not known as whether his arrival was due to chance, or if Massasoit had asked him to come down because he had picked up a few English phrases by trading with the British. In any case, Massasoit first first had sent Samoset, rather than to Squantum, to the foreigners. Samoset had walked unaccompanied and unarmed into the circle of rude huts in which the British were living on March 17, 1621. The colonists saw a robust, erect, postured man wearing only a loincloth. His straight black hair was shaved in front but flowed down his shoulders behind. To their further amazement, this almost naked man greeted them in broken but understandable English. He left the next morning with a few presents. A day later, he came back, accompanied by five, quote, tall, proper men, end quote. The phrase is the colonist Edward Winslow's. With three-inch black stripes painted down the middle of their faces, the two sides talked inconclusively, each warily checking out the other for a few hours. Now, on the 22nd, Samoset showed up again at the foreigner's ramshackle base, this time with Tisquantum in tow. Meanwhile, Massasoit and the rest of the Indian company waited out of sight. Samoset and Tisquantum spoke with the colonists for about an hour. Perhaps they then gave a signal, or perhaps Massasoit was simply following a prearranged schedule. In any case, he and the rest of the Indian party appeared without warning at the crest of a hill on the south bank of the creek that ran through the foreigner's camp. Alarmed by Massasoit's sudden entrance, the Europeans withdrew to the hill on the opposite bank, where they had emplaced their few cannons behind a half-finished stockade. A standoff ensued. Finally, Winslow exhibited the decisiveness that later led to his selection as colony governor. Wearing a full suit of armor and carrying a sword, he waded through the stream and offered himself as a hostage. Tisquantum, who walked with him, served as interpreter. Massasoit's brother took charge of Winslow, and then Massasoit crossed the water himself, followed by Tisquantum and twenty of Massasoit's men, all ostentatiously unarmed. The colonists took the sachem to an unfinished house and gave him some cushions to recline on. Both sides shared some of the foreigner's homemade moonshine, then settled down to talk, Tisquantum translating. To the colonists, Massasoit could be distinguished from his subjects more by manner than by dress or ornament. He wore the same deerskin shawls and leggings, and like his fellows had covered his face with a bug-repelling oil and reddish-purple dye. Around his neck hung a pouch of tobacco, a long knife, and a thick chain of the prized white shell beads called wampum, W-A-M-P-U-M. In appearance, Winslow wrote afterward, he was, quote, a very lusty man in his best years, an able body, grave of countenance, and spare of speech. The Europeans, who had barely survived the previous winter, were in much worse shape. Half of the original colony now lay underground beneath wooden markers painted with death's heads. Most of the survivors were malnourished. Their meeting was a critical moment in American history. The foreigners called their colony Plymouth. They themselves were the famous pilgrims. As schoolchildren learned at that meeting, the pilgrims obtained the services of Tisquantum, usually known as Squanto. In the 1970s, when I attended high school, 
a popular history text was America, Its People and Values by Leonard C. Wood. Nestled among colorful illustrations of colonial life was a succinct explanation of Tisquantum's role. A friendly Indian named Squanto helped the colonists. He showed them how to plant corn and how to live on the edge of the wilderness. A soldier, Captain Miles Standish, taught the pilgrims how to defend themselves against unfriendly Indians. My teacher explained that maize was unfamiliar to the pilgrims and that Tisquantum had demonstrated the proper maize planting technique, sticking the seed in little heaps of dirt accompanied by beans and squash that would later twine themselves up the tall stalks. And he told the pilgrims to fertilize the soil by burying fish alongside the maize seeds, a traditional native technique for producing a bountiful harvest. Following this advice, my teacher said, the colonists grew so much maize that it became the centerpiece of the first Thanksgiving. The story in America, its people and values, isn't wrong so far as it goes, but the impression it gives is entirely misleading. I want us to note how different the first part of that account is from the American history version that uh, Charles Mann describes in the very last part of the reading. Tisquantum, or Squanto, was, did not actually have that name, Tisquantum, given to him at birth. In Massachusetts language, it means something like powerful rage or wrath of God. So where did this come from? Tisquantum was from a village called Patuxet, south of Boston on the shore, a village that was part of the Wampanoag Confederation. The Wampanoag were allied with the Nauset, uh, N-A-U-S-E-T, on Cape Cod and the Massachusetts to the north. All spoke different variants of the Massachusetts language. They referred to themselves as people of the first light, and their land was the dawn land. Patuxet had two permanent settlements. Let me spell Patuxet for you, P-A-T-U-X-E-T. Patuxet had two permanent settlements, a summer home and a winter home, moving twice a year, short distances to avoid winter coastal storms. They had a 2,500 calorie per day diet, much better than most Europeans had. They ate corn, beans, squash, fish, nuts, fruits, and game. Wampanoag families were close and loving, children were not physically disciplined, and education focused on molding character and teaching gender-appropriate skills. In his teens, Tisquantum would have spent an entire winter alone in the forest with only a bow and arrow, hatchet, and knife. Wampanoag children were taught to be tough, uncomplaining, honest, and brave. When Tisquantum himself emerged as a leader, he was trained to be a counselor bodyguard to the village leader, the Sachem. The Patuxet Sachem governed internal and external affairs and was loyal to the Wampanoag Sachem and the other Sachems in the alliance. Correspondingly, Patuxet was enemies to the Narragansetts and their Pequot allies and to the Abenakis. Pequot is spelled P-E-Q-U-O-T. Abenaki is spelled A-B-E-N-A-K-I-S. 
Reciprocity, mutual exchange, was the rule because a sachem had to have the consent of his people to govern. If they were unhappy, they could easily leave their village and join another village, or leave the alliance and join up with enemies. Armed conflict was frequent but brief prior to the arrival of Europeans, the only objective being retribution rather than conquest or extermination. Prior to Tisquantum's meeting with the English, Indians in the Northeast had been interacting with Europeans for over a century, beginning with trade with the Italian sailor Verrazzano in the 1520s. Verrazzano spelled V-E-R-R-A-Z-A-N-O. Europeans fished, gathered sassafras, traded for goods, and sometimes kidnapped natives to take back to Europe. The first European Tisquantum probably met was Captain John Smith, from uh, the Pocahontas story, who was in the area trading English goods for, for, for furs in 1614 after he left Virginia. It was Smith that named Patuxet Plymouth. A few months after Smith's visit, his lieutenant kidnapped Tisquantum and at least 26 other Wampanoags and Nossets and took them to England. Indians in the area became quite hostile after this incident, killing and kidnapping French sailors on Cape Cod and in Boston Harbor. Tisquantum was in England for five years, and when he managed to return, Patuxet was gone, skeletons lying bleached by the sun, and Plymouth had been built on top of it. Tisquantum walked inland and found Massasoit, the Wampanoag Sachem, who had managed to survive an epidemic of hepatitis A with a few other families, about 60 people in all. The Wampanoag Confederation had been as many as 20,000 people. Now it was well fewer than 1,000. Not trusting Tisquantum's apparently friendly association with the English, Massasoit captured Tisquantum and they became uneasy allies. Meanwhile, the Puritans had their own assumptions about the world that they had come to live in. They arrived in 1620 with children and families with no food or shelter six weeks before the winter and no means of producing food in the English manner. They survived the winter by robbing Indian houses and graves for stored corn, beans, and dried meat. We have to wonder why they were so ill-prepared. Religious motives shaped the establishment of English colonies. They believed that God had chosen them as his favorite people, and the purpose was to create a society according to God's will. The London speculators who financed their voyage weren't interested in a long-term investment and so didn't provision the expedition for such a long period of time. The pilgrims, though, brought families and intended to settle permanently. The hepatitis A epidemic represented God's message that America was destined for Puritan ownership. The English developed an ambivalent attitude about Indians. Indians represented God's testing of Puritan faith. Indian life was a freedom from God's discipline that must be resisted. Puritans considered Indians to be imps of the devil that had the potential to destroy God's chosen people. But Indians also represented military security, economic opportunity, and a proselytizing opportunity, an opportunity to convert people to Christianity. 
Unlike the period before the kidnappings and the epidemic, when Indians could deal with Europeans or send them away, Massasoit didn't have the option of expelling the pilgrims at Patuxet. Instead, he figured he could form an alliance with them against his enemies, the Narragansett, in exchange for allowing the English to stay on his land. Massasoit didn't want didn't so much want the English alliance for their guns because English technologies were not nearly so well adapted to that environment as Wampanoag technologies. Rather, Massasoit intended to use the English to send a message to his enemies. It put the Narragansett diplomatically and economically off balance if they had to go to war against one group of English while at the same time their main trading partners were another group of English. In the kinship system that the Wampanoag and Narragansett and others operated under, this kind of circumstance was nearly untenable. Massasoit made the English both kin and enemies to the Narragansett, a situation that would make the Narragansett think twice about attacking the Wampanoag. So what was going through Tisquantum's mind? He wanted to stay in Patuxet to be of use to the English, possibly to wrest control of the Wampanoag away from Massasoit, reestablish Patuxet as the new capital of the Confederation. In the fall of 1621, the first Thanksgiving was held in this context. Tisquantum, as a go-between, invited Massasoit and 90 others to sit down with the English at a feast of political alliance. All the while, Tisquantum tried to convince other Wampanoags that he could protect them better against the Narragansett than Massasoit could, saying that the English were loyal to him. In the spring of 1622, Tisquantum started a rumor among the English that Massasoit and the Narragansett were going to attack. His logic was that the English would rise up against Massasoit and attack him, and Tisquantum's hands would seem clean from both sides. But the English checked on Tisquantum's rumor and found it to be false. Enraged, Massasoit ordered the pilgrims to execute Tisquantum, which they refused to do because he was too valuable as a translator. So Massasoit cut off diplomatic relations with the pilgrims, leaving them vulnerable to attack and without alliance, without a trading partner to supplement their food in a drought that struck the region that very summer. Later that year in 1622, Tisquantum suddenly became sick and died within a few days. Massasoit's power was secured for the time being, and a decade later another epidemic nearly wiped out the Narragansett and again realigned the region politically. Massasoit spent the next decade developing a middle ground, the kind of middle ground that we talked about in the last two lectures, and dealing with thousands of new English settlers and missionaries. It's Massasoit's own son, Metacom, uh, spelled M-E-T-A-C-O-M, also called King Philip, who is the major player in the war that we will learn about next week. King Philip ended the functioning alliance between the English and the Indians. Alongside some of these events, Native people were becoming Christians, converted by uh, English Puritan ministers and others who had come very quickly to inhabit Massachusetts after these very this very first wave of political uh, Puritan settlers. In 1646, John uh, John Eliot, 
uh, an English minister, began to convert Indians, mostly Nipmucks. Nipmuc is spelled N-I-P-M-U-C-K-S. The Massachusetts Bay Colony Legislature began to establish reservations in 1651, which became missions for converts. And they also established 14 different so-called praying towns between 1651 and 1675. The goals with these praying towns were similar to the Spanish goals of Christianizing Indians. They wanted to transform Indians into Englishmen culturally. So Christianization disrupted the, the system that reinforced reciprocity and trade and politics because praying Indians held themselves outside the system and they posed a direct threat to King Philip's power which contributed to the war that we will learn about more next week. Take care, everybody.